Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. You are loved. You are fully loved. You are fully loved today, just as you are. Now, for some of you, that is a warm glow. You think, I've had a good week. This week, I checked so many things off my to-do list. It was a great week at work. When I left work yesterday afternoon, the desk was clean. Things have gone well at home, and now you say I've settled in for worship, and I hear that I am loved. Life is good. Praise God. But if that's you, let me add something. The fact that you had a good week, a productive week, a good week at home, has nothing to do with the reality that you are loved. In fact, if you'd had a horrible week, if you had only lengthened the to-do list, if you had left yesterday with mounds on your desk, things hadn't gone so great at home, it would not change the fact that today you are fully loved. In fact, I remember reading a story years ago about a man in a 12-step group. He was taking his fourth and fifth steps. You remember those. Fourth step made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It's that moment when when the participants write down their life story, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's all there in black and white. Now it's hard to deny. It's not a pretty picture. That's step four. And then step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Wow. The man told of taking steps four and five with his sponsor. He said, when I finished sharing my story with my sponsor, I sat with head bowed, filled with shame. My sponsor stood up, pulled me to my feet, and wrapped me in a bear hug. The man wrote, I may have been loved before, but I never felt loved until that moment. So whatever your week was like, whatever your condition is today, just know this, you are loved fully. That's the first message of today's text. This is the imagery that is used in the text. The Father, God, the Father loves the Son profoundly, and the Son makes His home in that love. But because love moves us outward, That love spills over. It overflows out the doors and the windows of the house, and it drenches us. And then the son looks at us and says, you are loved. Make your home in this love. So that's the first message of the text. You are loved. Now, the fact that you are loved has implications, has consequences as outcomes. 
And that's what we'll find in the text today. So I go with you to John's Gospel to the 15th chapter, John chapter 15, and we will begin reading in verse 9. These are the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Someone made a comment not too many days ago, that made its way to me. I wasn't really the focus of the comment. It was a general comment that was made about churches and teachers and preachers in this day and time. The person said, with the world in the shape it's in, with nature rebelling, with the realities of human existence and relationship coming apart at the seams, I am sick and tired of hearing about love. It's time we had some real sermons, some real teaching. I am so tired of those kinds of sermons. <laughs> well, you can imagine, even though it may not have been directed at me, a preacher, a teacher, hears a statement like that, and, and, and we sit up. We pay attention. We do an inventory. Is the person right? Are we, as Scripture says, teaching and preaching the full counsel of God? After all, books like Daniel and Revelation are just as certainly a part of the canon as are books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Too much teaching? Too many sermons about love? I did an inventory. I thought, where should an inventory about such matters begin? If we are facing cataclysmic realities, where should our focus be? Well, it seems fair to me to say that the best place to begin an inventory of such things would be to ask, what would Jesus do in such a setting? What would He do in such a circumstance? And actually, we know what He would do because we know what He did. John chapters 13 through 17 give us a record of what Jesus shared, how he opened his heart, how he taught his disciples in the final hours of his life. We're settling down in this three-part series, The Abiding Disciple, into one chapter, John 15, of that section. We're focusing on three relationships in the disciples' world because that's where Jesus focused. First is the re disciples' relationship to Jesus. We spent our time on that last week. 
characterized by maintaining connection with him, the branch with the vine. Abide in me, he said. And now today we come to the second part, the third part next week, the second part today. Here he will say, abide in my love as I abide in the Father's love. There's that word, love. In fact, the truth is, in this particular passage of Scripture, in John's Gospel 15, 9 to 17, the word love, the Greek word agape, appears nine times in nine verses. Love, 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 love. Jesus can't stop talking about love. In fact, he's coming to the heart of what this book is all about. It's all about love. I am appreciative, deeply appreciative, as are many of you, to Dr. Alden Thompson of Walla Walla University for helping us focus in on understanding what's at the core of Scripture. It's something that Alden calls the one, the two, the ten, and the many. So just imagine we were to have a conversation with God one day, and we were to say to God, God, can you tell us what's at the core of everything? in the story of Scripture, in the human experience, on this planet, in your plan, what's the heart of it all? Can you give us just a succinct answer? And God looks at us and He says, the heart of it all is, one word, love. Hmm. Well, that helps, God. Thank you. But that word can be a little bit hard to pin down. Kind of like some clay in our hands. If we just keep kneading it, we can mold it into anything we want. So, so can you help us understand a bit more specifically what you mean when you say everything is about love? He says, all right, I'll give you two things instead of just one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes it all. And we say, oh, thank you, God. That, that really helps. That really helps. But I mean, even that is sometimes a little bit hard to quantify and fully understand. God, forgive us for being persistent. Can you define it even further? God says, all right, here's what I'll do. I'm going to give you ten commandments. Instead of one or two, I'll give you ten. On the first table of the Ten Commandments, that will help you understand what it means to love God. The second table, it'll help you understand what it means to love others. So now you have ten, and we say, oh, thank you, God. That really helps. Thank you. We, we appreciate that. But God, after spending some time with the ten, that still leaves questions. And so God says, all right. If the one isn't enough, the two aren't enough, if the ten aren't enough, here's a book. Just take the whole book and spend your life reading and seeking to understand this book, and that will explain it all. But understand, at the core of it all, it can be summarized with one word, love. And that's precisely what Jesus tells his disciples at this point. He says it again and again, nine times. In those verses, love. That's pretty pointed. 
and the realities of Calvary are just hours away, cataclysmic realities for Jesus, for his followers, for the history of the planet. And he's talking about love. Now, in this passage, Jesus is very specific. He's not here talking about a broad love. Love everyone. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. He certainly does that. But in this context, he's very specific. Love each other, he says. This is the disciples' relationship to other disciples. This is what is to characterize the church. In fact, you'll remember that just two chapters before today's passage in John 13, Jesus says, By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's very pointed. This community of my followers is to be characterized by love for each other. And we say, well, wow, Jesus. So just how do we love each other? Because I don't know if you've looked lately, Jesus, but your church, it's got a few undesirables in it. How do we love each other? Jesus has already told us. He says, love each other as I have loved you. So how has he loved us? Trace the trajectory of his life and you will see when he wailed as a baby in Bethlehem's manger, creator enfleshed as creature, he was loving us. When his body wasted away to the point of emaciation in a 40-day desert fast, he was loving us. When he was hounded every step of his public ministry by relig religious leaders who mocked him, who pursued him, who threatened him, he was loving us when he knelt in the dirt and traced with his finger forgiveness for the woman who half-clothed had been cast at his feet, guilty as charged, he was loving every last guilty one of us. When they threw in his face what they meant as a curse, this man welcomed sinners and eats with them. He was loving every single sinner among us. And when he hung suspended on a cross, with the strident cacophony echoing in his ears, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He knew in his soul that because he wouldn't save himself, he would save others, and he was loving us. Every step of his journey, he loved us fully, completely, selflessly. Love each other as I have loved you. What a passage. What a reality to share, to point to. As the shadow of the cross lies thick across his path.
Just think of what he's saying here. Could, could, could we try to just briefly summarize it in a little short paragraph? Starts with the Father and the heart of love that the Father has. It says the Father loves Jesus and Jesus, the Son, settles down in that love, makes his home there. But because the nature of the love is always to move outward for others, soon that love spills over onto us. And the Son says, now you make this your home, my love. The way you make it home, your home, is to do what I ask you to do, to follow my will for your life. And you know what? Following my will for your life will bring you great joy. It'll bring you joy because you have now become not servants, but friends. How do you know your friends? Because I have opened my heart to you. You now know the heart of God. You don't do that with servants. You do that with friends. And in fact, I've made provision for you in the future so that anything you ask the Father in my name about bearing fruit, you will be provided. You're concerned about fruit bearing? Remain in my love, and you will have what is necessary to bear that fruit. So do that. And don't forget my command. Love each other. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I want to re-summarize that paragraph again in much more elegant language than mine from the pen of a New Testament scholar by the name of Gerald Borchert. Listen to Borchert's words as he summarizes this passage. To summarize, authentic discipleship in this bullseye segment is evidenced and encapsulated in love for one another. That has been epitomized by Jesus, who died for frail human beings. This model of self-sacrifice is recognized by those whom Jesus calls his friends, for they do what he commands. But their obedience is not the result of some sort of slavery, since his friends since as his friends, they have learned from Jesus about the will of God. This knowledge did not result from their own capabilities. It was given to them because they were chosen and appointed to bear fruit or spread the wonderful gospel to others as their mission. They were given the resource of prayer because to accomplish God's will, one needs God's resources. And finally, God's will is exemplified in a living community of disciples who love one another. That's the command of Jesus. Love one another. I don't know if you have the same reaction to that as I have had. I felt it quite a bit this week in preparation as I spent time with this passage. Jesus doesn't suggest that we love one another. He doesn't urge us to ponder it and think it through. He doesn't tell us to pray about it. He commands it. And I read that and I think, how can you command love? And yet he is very clear, and that's another word he uses more than once in this passage. He commands us to love one another. After all, just look around us in the culture, in the literature, in the movies, and answer the question, what is love? 
One way we, we answer the question is to say, love is that warm glow one feels when being in the company of a good, dear friend, platonic. But you like the person. It's a feeling of goodwill. That's love. Or the culture will say, love is that, that, that spark, that chemistry you feel for that person to whom you are sexually drawn and attracted. Hot, passionate, that's love. No wonder we ask, how can you command love if that's what we think love is? That's not what Jesus means. Not by a long shot. That word that I mentioned that is named in one form or another nine times in this passage, that word agape, well, let me read you a sense of that word from one scholarly resource. Here it is, agape. To have a strong, non-sexual affection and love for a person and their good as understood by God's moral character, especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. In other words, it is selfless action on behalf of another and his or her good. It may have nothing to do with what you feel toward that person. We have a living example of that among us right now during this time of pandemic. We have it in the lives and the work of those frontline healthcare providers who literally put their lives on the line day in and day out to care for people who are fighting for and often clinging to life. I've had the sacred honor, sacred honor, of on more than one occasion in recent weeks and months, being on a call, a phone call or a Zoom call, with a family who cannot be near their loved one, who are saying goodbye, loved one who has spent much time alone, is facing the end alone. On those calls, I, I, I've felt the tragedy of that experience. But then I've realized they're not totally alone because there in that room is a nurse, a doctor, a respiratory therapist, somebody who's putting their life on the line to help. It's active. What do they feel? My guess is that many of them feel spent, tired, weary, overwhelmed, not wanting to go back to the hospital. Yet there they are. You say, but it's their job. Really? Do you remember the story? Story of the wounded soldiers from the battle in the makeshift hospital. There, over one bed hovered a nurse 
cleaning out the gangrenous wound on the leg of the soldier. Putrid, foul smell, rotting flesh. Gently, patiently cleaning, cleaning it out. Soldier on the next bed, looking at it, nose wrinkled. Finally couldn't help himself, he said to the nurse, I wouldn't do that for a million bucks. She didn't raise her head, simply replied, neither would I. That's agape. That's love. Unselfish action for the good of another person. Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. I know what you might be tempted to say to Jesus because I am tempted to say the same thing, and that is, but Jesus, you don't know the people in my life and world. You, you don't understand. Maybe you're saying, you don't understand my boss or my friend with whom I've had a falling out or my ex-spouse, maybe you're saying. You don't know these people. How am I supposed to love them? And Jesus responds, and he says, here's how you love them. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Live, dwell in my love. And we say, Jesus, how's that supposed to help? Well, two scholars writing in one commentary help us answer that question. Here it is. The logic here is simple and clear. I, being in myself unlovable, cannot keep on loving my brother or sister, who is also often very unlovable, at least as I see them, unless I constantly reflect on and remain in the love of Christ for myself. Not only do we love Him because He first loved us, but we also love one another because He first loved us. Our love for one another is an extension of Christ's love for us. It is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts so copiously that it overflows into the lives of others. We abide in His love and the kind of love that Jesus has for us, that unselfish action on behalf of another when truly and deeply experienced cannot remain turned in on itself. It must move outward. So when we ask Jesus, how am I supposed to love them? He says, you remain, you abide, you dwell in my love. because that love will not let you stay turned in on yourself. You want an example of what that kind of love does? Permit me one more quote. This one from the pen of a scholar named Alan Kreider, who writing in a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, is writing about that time in early church history, about those centuries when the future of Christianity was anything but certain. It was a minority, though it was beginning to grow. How did it grow? Listen to Kreider's words as he talks about how the people around these Christ followers experienced it. Kreider says, What outsiders saw was not their worship. 
it was their habitus. Habitus refers to the socially ingrained habits, skills, and dispositions in terms of how people live in the world. It wasn't their worship, it was their habitus, says Kreider. According to Tertullian, the outsiders looked at the Christians and saw them energetically feeding poor people and burying them, caring for boys and girls who lacked property and parents, and being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. They interpreted these actions as a work of love. And they said, Vide, look, how they love one another. They did not say, Aude, listen to the Christian's message. They did not say, Lege, read what they write. Hearing and reading were important, and some early Christians worked to communicate in these ways too. But we must not miss the reality. The pagans said, look, Christianity's truth was visible. It was embodied and enacted by its members. It was made tangible, sacramental. Some people, a minority in society, no doubt, but a small number that was growing, were drawn by this approach to the Christians to inquire about their faith. Look. Look what they're doing when the world collapses around them. They are loving. We see it in their actions. We're less interested in what they write. We're less interested in what they say. We are very interested in what they do. Jesus calls us to love the world, to love our neighbors. But in this passage, he calls us to love one another. So we could summarize this passage by saying, growing disciples unselfishly love other disciples. Growing disciples unselfishly love other disciples. So let me speak specifically to you, my Loma Linda University Church friend, fellow member, fellow member of this community. You know how we state our purpose at our church. Growing disciples, two words. You see it on our website, our stationary, our business cards, our bulletin, growing disciples. Let me ask you, is that happening? Is that true? Is that real, authentic, genuine about us? What about that friend with whom you have had a rupture? It's been easier during the pandemic. You don't see them, but you know it's there. There's that broken bridge between you and that person. What about your ex-spouse? When we're worshiping in person, you sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary or you come to different services. You avoid each other. But even now, during the pandemic, there are still those times when you have to hand off kids. The icy silence, the passive-aggressive behavior, the barely buried anger. Growing disciples. Your boss. You attend the same Sabbath school class. You've almost stopped going because it's so hard to see that person there. Now on Zoom, <laughs> you can just put your picture up on the screen and you don't have to worry about it. 
but it's still there. It's hard to look them in the eye, especially after what you've said about them behind their back. Growing disciples. What about it, friends? Jesus here tells us that growing disciples unselfishly love other disciples. He does not say we like them. He does not say we hold hands around the campfire and sing kumbaya and have, have warm, glowing feelings of affection for them. What he does say is this kind of agape love will move us outward in action that is in the best interest of the other person, regardless of how we feel. That, he says, is what growing disciples do. After having spent a thoughtful, prayerful week with this passage, I realize I have a lot of growing to do. And I suspect there might be someone out there that needs to grow some as well. I'm committed to it because Jesus has told us how to do it. Remain, live, abide in my love. You willing to commit? Are you willing to join me? So that it can be truthfully said of this church, those people over there, they are growing disciples.